He is a servant of action. In fact, we begin to see that in the first part of the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. The scriptures read, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So here the servant, Jesus Christ, claims to be anointed by God himself. And that teaches us two things. There's two specific ideas that we can draw from that word anointed. And that means this. First of all, it means that Jesus was set apart for a specific task, to accomplish a specific task by God. And what we'll find is it wasn't just one task, but there was a series of tasks that he was set aside to fulfill. And what we also see is when we use that word anointing, it also means that he was empowered, that he not only was given a task, but he was empowered by God himself to fulfill and to bring about the task that he was sent. And so what we find here in the early part of the scripture, in the very first part of verse one, is that that anointing, that power came from the Holy Spirit resting upon his life, which assures us that whatever it was that God had sent him out to accomplish, he would indeed accomplish it. And what's interesting about this passage, Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, is that when we go to the New Testament and look at Luke chapter 4, uh, there in that passage we see that Jesus was in the city of Nazareth, and he went to a synagogue, and while he was at that synagogue, he took a scripture, a, a, a scroll, and he began to read it, and that what he read was this Isaiah passage. And when he finished reading it and he rolled it up and he handed it to uh, one of the servants there, he then sat down and when he sat down, he said this in Luke chapter 4, he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus was claiming at that point is that he was claiming that he was the servant that, that Isaiah had written about 700 years before he was that servant and he was demonstrating that what Isaiah said he would accomplish He was there to fully and completely accomplish as God had set him apart to do. So in just a little bit of time this morning, my Christmas gift to you, a shortened half message. Isn't that an amazing thing? What we're going to do is we're just going to look at just a few things this morning of what it was that Jesus specifically accomplished, the task that God had given to him as he came into a hopeless world in order to bring hope. So what was it that he was sent to accomplish? First of all, he came to bring change. He came to bring change. Have you noticed the Bible says to bring, he says, the spirit of God, the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And notice the next sentence, to bring good news to the poor. Now the word poor there in the Old Testament, in the Greek, or excuse me, in the Hebrew, uh, actually can refer refer to somebody who is either um, physically or spiritually impoverished, okay? There's, there's a sense of both of those happening in this particular text. It speaks of somebody, either way, it speaks of somebody who is continually confronted by a life of difficulties and hardships because of their poverty, because of the position of poverty that they're in. Now, I think it's really important that I give you a little bit of context so that you understand what we mean by poor Because what Americans mean by poor and what Isaiah would have meant by poor are two completely different extremes. We hear about people being in poverty all the time here in America, and I'm not going to suggest that there aren't people in true poverty, but what we find is through the government, how it interprets it is you can have a home, you can have a car, you can have central heat and air, uh, you can have cable, 
Um, You can have so much food that you end up throwing it away at the end of the day. You can have so many clothes that it fills your closet, your drawers, and you can even have a storage unit. And still somehow in America, according to the government, you still file somehow in below the poverty level. Okay, when we talk about poverty, that's not what we're talking about, okay? When he talks about being poor, he's talking about the truest essence of poverty and being poor. During Isaiah's day, if you were poor, you had no home. The clothes that you had were completely insufficient for you to be able to really protect you from the elements during the day. You were exposed. You did not have any food. In fact, you were in a position each and every day of a beggar. You weren't sitting there trying to figure out ways to lose weight. You got that? You had already lost the weight. You were just trying to get enough calories day in and day out, just enough for you to be able to live just one more day. That's what he means by poverty. And here in the book of Isaiah and in the Old Testament, oftentimes this picture of physical poverty is used to really demonstrate something even greater and grander, and that is their spiritual poverty. And what it suggests is this, is that before this Messiah, before this servant God comes into the world, he, he says that those who lived on the earth before he came were in a horrible spiritual condition. Before you and I came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were spiritually impoverished. Which means that during that day, for those, they could not get themselves out of that situation. If you were born poor, you died poor. And so what the scriptures say is we were the same exact way. We were born in spiritual poverty, which means that we are completely hopeless. We we, we were nothing more than beggars because we couldn't get ourselves out of the slum condition that the Bible indicates is being sin. And so all we did is in order for us to live, every day we were on the brink of disaster, of eternal damnation before God. And so all we became was beggars because there was nothing we could do to be able to save ourselves. And so what the scriptures say here is that when this one comes, he comes and he brings good news. And that good news literally means good news of a change. And and what he would say is that there was going to be a change in their circumstances. Now, for those who were in poverty during that day, who, who had no hope of any kind of change, didn't believe they could ever get out of poverty, for somebody to come and say, hey, listen, I'm bringing about a change in your circumstances, there was no better news. And what I would suggest for you this morning is when Jesus Christ came into the world, there was no greater news than the fact that what he would do is he would come and change the spiritual circumstances for men and women who lived on this earth. He would take those who were dead and depraved and were dying and on the brink of disaster, falling in, in, separated from God every single day. He would come and he would bring them life. Now listen, we have politicians. We have Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Tea Party, Green Party, whatever parties, okay, all these different groups who come, and what they suggest is every time they want to be elected, all they have to do is promise change, right? And what what they're saying is, and what they're suggesting is, we're going to change your circumstances. Now, as many people, the more people they can convince that their circumstances are going to change, the more votes this, this person is going to get, right? And everybody comes shouting that thing. But what we find throughout history is oftentimes change happens, but it's not always the change we were hoping for. You got that? But the scriptures say here that when this one comes, he's going to bring about real change. A change that's going to be radical. Because it's going to change the circumstances and the situation in which men live. They're going to go from death into life. And what the Bible says is those who are spiritually poor are going to become spiritually rich.
Those who are beggars just pleading to try to live each and every day are going to be made children of the king. Those that the Bible says that are hungry are going to be filled and they're going to be satisfied like never before. Those who are naked in their sin, in their guilt, they're going to be covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those that are completely homeless and without a home and feel lonely, they are going to be given an eternal home crafted and made by the great servant of God's hands himself. And so this was the change that he came to bring. The Bible teaches us that when this servant comes, Jesus Christ, he came to bring a change, a great spiritual change. The second thing the Bible says is that he also came to heal the brokenhearted. Notice the next, the next sentence. He says that he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, by this servant's own admission, what he says is when I come, my job is going to heal all those who have been greatly afflicted by their enemies. Now, in the immediate context, what the Jews would have thought of at that particular moment is a promise that when the, when the Messiah comes, he was going to save them from their enemies, the Babylonians. They had really struggled and suffered greatly at the hands of the Babylonians. They had been taken from their land. They had been separated from their jobs, separated from their people, separated from their families, and they were enslaved. And so what happens is they had all kinds of wounds, physical wounds that they could show from the hands of their enemy, the Babylonians. But it went far, it was far greater than just physical wounds. It was spiritual wounds, emotional wounds from, from everything that their enemies had afflicted. And so in their minds, it would have been great news that the one that was to come that was going to heal each and every wound. But what the Bible teaches us is that there is really a greater enemy than those that are made up of flesh and blood. In fact, our enemies are not flesh and blood. Instead, the greatest enemy of mankind, humankind, is sin. Sin has wounded us. And it hasn't just made us sick, it's wounded us to the point of death. And what I want you to understand is, maybe even this morning, maybe you find yourself in pain, but whatever pain or struggles that you find, I want to let you know that the ultimate cause of that is sin that has entered into the world. It's the cause of our, all of our heartache. You know, if you're suffering physically, I've, I've known a little bit, small little tad, of what it means to have a difficult physical year, okay? I know what that is, and maybe you know it to a much greater extent. Or maybe you, right now, at this time, have to see some family members that you love dearly going through some of that physical pain, and it's breaking your heart. There are those emotional pains that we see, those emotional pains that come from, from broken homes and, and broken vows and, and, and rebellious children. Those are emotional heartaches. We see it as well. We see it spiritually. And when a person comes to understand that they have been separated from God, their creator, and they're not living as though in, in the way in which they had uh, initially been created, and now they live underneath the burden of, God, of the perpetual threat and promise of God's ultimate judgment that will come down on them on the day of judgment. And so the point is that all of those pains all go back to our greatest enemy and the greatest cause, and that is sin and sin that is inside the world. You know, this last week I did a funeral in the beginning of the week, and one of the things that I always say at a funeral, and I always try to encourage the family members, I always try to tell them to guard their heart, not to become angry with God. Because when you lose somebody that you love, especially suddenly, or they go through really a devastating uh, death, there is a tendency for people to want to strike out and, and they become irritated and they don't know who to strike out at. So they strike out against God and they say, God, why did you make this happen? Why did you allow this happen? Why did you take this person from me? 
And so I always tell them to guard their heart in the midst of all of that. And, you know, the 14th of this month was the second uh, anniversary of, of my brother's death. And you guys were here during that time, or some of you were, and that was a great struggle to see really an elite athlete uh, go from the point of, of running races, beating people, and going in, and representing the U.S. in Italy in the world championships, and then just in a period of three months go to where his body was completely ravaged with cancer. And I remember going through that process and walking along with him and seeing this thing. But I'll tell you, not because of any goodness in me or great faith in me, but never once did I blame God. And the reason that I blame God is because I understand that God is not the author of sin. And sin has ultimately brought about disease under the curse of sin. Disease has been brought in and that cancer was ultimately the outcome of original sin. And so what it made me do is I saw him begin to suffer and his body begin to wilt away. What I began to do is hate sin and begin to realize just how serious this issue of sin is and how it has marred God's creation and how it has caused such great and continual and perpetual suffering, how serious that sin must be. But all the more, what it made me do is love God all the more. Because I understand that when Jesus first came, when Jesus first came, he came to start putting that sin away once and for all. And when that sin was ultimately and fully put away, which would come about at his first and then fulfilled completely in his second coming, he would wipe away every tear. Why? Because he would bind up and he would heal every wound of every man, woman, and child who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. And all of those wounds would completely go away with no memory, with no hurt. And so what it made me desire to do is for him to come all the more, for him to come all the more. And so the Bible says that he's going to do two things. When he came, he came to bring about change. Secondly, he came to heal the broken hearts. And the third thing that he, the Bible says is that he came to set captives free. And the scriptures, the very next line, it says this, that he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. The word liberty there is actually a technical term in the Hebrew, and it's used to describe uh, what, is, what was known as the year of Jubilee. And it's really discussed at some length in, in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 7 and 10. Every seven years, the Jews were called to set apart one year, um, and that particular year was to be a Sabbath year. So they were called to farm and to sow and to reap the land for six years, and on the seventh year, they wouldn't farm or, or, or sow or reap at all in that one year. They would set it apart and allow the land to rest. Well, what we find is after seven of these Sabbath, Sabbath years, 49 years in all, the 50th year, the final Sabbath year of, of those seven Sabbaths years, what we find is, is that one year was called the year of Jubilee. And what would happen is God had commanded the people at that point to return, to, to eliminate all their debts. Wouldn't that be nice if this year was the year of Jubilee? Wouldn't that be great? All their debts was to be forgiven. All the slaves were to be set free. All the land that had been confiscated because people couldn't be, pay their bills was to go back to the original owners. All of this was to return at the year of Jubilee. And so in the immediate context, what this would have been a promise of is it would have told the people that, hey, listen, your Savior's coming. You're going to be delivered by the Babylonians or from the Babylonians. You're going to be able to go back to your land. You're no longer going to be slaves. So that would have been wonderful. But yet there is a greater fulfillment of this, and that is for those who would place, repent of their sin and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He says, if you've ever repented of your sin and recognized that you're a sinner before God and placed your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, he says, you're actually believe, you are actually living in the year of Jubilee. He says that you have actually been set free from the bondage and slavery of sin and your sin debt has been forgiven and you have been allowed to be able to return to your land and that is what fellowship with a holy God. What a beautiful picture this is. You know, and it's interesting in John chapter eight that the, the, um, the Jews come over to um, Jesus and he begins uh, to speak to them. And this is what he says. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you, abide in, if, you abide in my, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that, you will, that we will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And so what he suggests here is this. He's telling me, he goes, look, you may not think that you're in slavery. He says, but every person who practices sin is underneath the curse of sin. They're slave to sin. Which means simply this, is that they can't help but to sin because they're saturated. They're completely and fully depraved with sin. They can't help but to sin against their creator, God. And guess what? They owe a great sin debt for rebelling against their creator. And because of that great sin debt, they know the judgment of God is resting upon them until the great day of judgment, the great judgment day of God. And so what Jesus says, he says, listen, when he comes, what he's going to do is he's going to set us free. He's going to pay our sin debt. Your sin debt would be paid, and how would it be paid, church? It would be paid by Jesus Christ going to the cross, not dying for his sin debt, but for your sin debt. And for my sin debt, all those who would repent and believe he died for each and every one of those. And the scriptures say just very clearly in the word and the very next, the very next uh, portion, he says, in the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And the word opening there is a very descriptive word because even though it's speaking about opening up the prison, what it actually means is literally is to open up the eyes. When Jesus came, one of the ways that he, he brought you and I into this year of Jubilee, into this freedom, was by opening your eyes and opening my eyes. You say, what is that all about? Before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were blinded. We believed that sin was great. It was wonderful. It was something to ultimately pursue. It was how we ultimately lived our lives. We saw absolutely, we had absolutely no affections for God, no affections for Christ, no affections to do his will. And the Bible says ultimately that when he comes and he saves us, he opens our eyes and that which we thought was so beautiful, was so wonderful, was actually decrepit and awful. And that who we thought was decrepit and wanted nothing to do with the person of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden he became infinitely beautiful. This is John Piper says, he says, we are all, when we are sinners, he goes, and we're groping in the dark and we're walking around in the dark, we cling to what we think is a beautiful brooch in the darkness and we cling to it and we think it's of great value, but when the lights are turned on, we find that it's not a brooch, but rather it's a roach and it's, it's hideous and you want nothing to do with it and you want to flee, you want to take it and, and, and throw it from you as far as you possibly can. And he says, that's what happens when we get saved. He says, he comes and he saves us, and those who are captive to sin, he sets them free, which is a beautiful thing because you and I who now sin still 
still many times and we still need the perpetual and continual forgiveness of God for those sins, the Bible says that there is no sin that can constrain you and enslave you, that you are free from that through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within. And so here's really kind of the call this morning. It's really a time of celebration this morning because as we reflect, we see two things. The call is very simple. To those who have experienced faith in Jesus Christ, for those who recognize that they were sinners, that they were spiritually depraved, that they were lost, that they owed a debt that they could not pay because of their sin that not only they were born in, but because they willfully sinned against God, when they understand that they were enslaved to that sin and owed that sin debt to God, but yet when Jesus Christ came and they repented of their sin, And they said, God, I want nothing to do with this again, but rather I place my faith in Jesus because when Jesus was born, he was born to die. And when he died on that cross, he died for me. And if you've come to that particular point, what you understand is he brought about a change in you. He not only brought about a change, but he also healed your broken heart. And even though your heart is not, it still deals with, with, with brokenheartedness and sadness in your life, when he comes again, he's gonna wipe that completely and fully away. And finally, we see that we are no longer captives of sin. And so we celebrate all this on Christmas morning. That's what it is. And for you who have experienced that, I would say, in not a quirky way or a corny way, but in the truest sense possible, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. But perhaps you're here this morning, and perhaps that has not been a decision of you. Perhaps you're coming at the invite of another friend or a family member, whatever it is, and maybe you've come and, and you've lived all of your life and you've celebrated these Christmases, but the truth of the matter is you've never known the essence of it. I want to let you know, Christmas Day marks the day where 700 years of prophecy came true when Jesus Christ came into this world to set the captive free. And I'm just saying in a very simple way, if you will recognize that you're a sinner, if you recognize that you've sinned against God, you may, you may identify yourself as a good man. You may identify yourself as a good woman, but the Bible says the very best thing about you, the very best thing about me and the eyes of God is like dirty, filthy rags before him. And that we are in great need to repent of that sin and to place our faith and to receive what Christ did for us on the cross. Well, guess what? Today can be a very Merry Christmas for you as well. If you'd repent and you'd believe. Jesus, we come to you today. We thank you and we praise you, God, for this morning.